The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Jan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. None of us is uh, traveling. I'm not driving right now. Um, I'm home in my basement, just, you know, where any good podcaster should be. Yeah. <laughs> really? Podcast in your basement? Uh, I am tonight. Um, usually I do it from my office, which is upstairs. Uh, but my uh, my laptop that I usually record on. Uh, the audio is acting up, and so I'm on my my big machine, which is down in the basement. Yeah. Well. All right. Well. We'll. we'll so you sound extra uh, um, extra damp. And, well, uh, I've got I've well, got a well, I've got a big uh, Nvidia uh, Titan GTX 10 or 1080 GTX uh, powering this machine with a, an AMD Ryzen five and lots of RAM and and uh, and uh, solid state storage. So let's we're good to go. That sounds super cool. Qu- like it's it's quiet. The last machine I built sounds like a freaking jet engine. Yeah, no, I mean, they they've gotten a lot better with the fan designs on these things. Um, so this this one actually is surprisingly quiet, given the especially the amount of GPU that's yeah. in this thing. All right, well we'll take <laughs> advantage a- of it. Um, we see we're going to talk. We'll talk about what we're driving. Then we're going to talk about the e-tron Audi e-tron Quattro, the Cadillac XT4, and uh, you were out in the uh, the Paci- the the Lincoln Nautilus drive. Uh, yep. So you can fill us in on that. But uh, yeah, first let's, let's talk about what we've been in and uh, it looks like you have been in a couple of things. Yeah. So, I mean, we've had a couple of weeks since the last recording um, because uh, you got tied up with some, some day job stuff last week. So uh, since we last talked, uh, I've been through uh, two very different cars, but um both very appealing in their own ways. So first up, I had the uh, BMW 230i, um, which uh, I can say right now without reservation is my favorite BMW that I've driven at least since the i8. Um, the you know the 230i you know the the two series right now is about as close as you're going to get to you know what were some of the the great uh, three series you know of the the 90s. Like the E36 uh, 3 Series, you know, it's it's smaller than the current 3 Series, um, the, the 230, you know, the, the 2 Series in, in BMW's current naming scheme, anything uh, that starts with an even number is a coupe convertible or grand coupe, as they like to say. Grand coupe uh, or so, grand coupe? <laughs> uh, well, whatever. Yeah. There's no D in there, so it's, it's grand. Grand coupe. G-R-A-N. 
Um, so a two, four or six or eight series, is, you know, is going to be a two door or a four door coupe. Um, and then the odd numbered ones, the three, five, one, three, five and seven are sedans. Uh, so like, they're not that different though. When you like the four doors, I don't know. And we don't uh, have to split. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless, you know, the, the two, the two series is the, the smallest of the coupes that they have right now. So it's smaller than the current three series. And, you know, the, the last time I drove a two series, uh, actually at that time it was still a one series, uh, you know, it was back, I don't know, eight or nine years ago. You know, and it was even smaller than it is now. You know, it had a very tight back seat. You know, this this current two series has a slightly more usable back seat. But but what's really special about it, you know, is the the 230i has the uh, two liter four cylinder turbocharged. Um, it's comparatively light, um, nimble feeling, and it's just it's just a lot of fun to drive. You know, it's plenty quick. Um, you know, it's got lots of power. It's, I think 270 horsepower. Um, maybe not quite that much. Maybe 260, 250. Um, but it, it feels quick and and nimble and has better steering feel than a three series. Um, you know, I think it's it's pretty. Uh, I think it's a good looking car. Um, you know, it's got more of the the profile of you know, the older um, three series coupes, and um, it was just really enjoyable to spend a week with even so even without a manual transmission right it's like a, it's a proper bmw like it it's, and we'll we'll talk about it when we get some what i'm driving too but it like they, they haven't forgotten you know like, right uh so it sounds like Only that was a little bit of a surprise <laughs> yeah no it you know there, there are you know there are cars you know i mean the two the two series you know for for the people that you know, love, you know, that grew up loving the three, you know, when car and driver was, you know, for the first 25 years that car and driver was putting it on their 10 best list. Um, you know, the, the two series is the car for those people, you know, those that think that car and driver should have dropped the three series from the 10 best list about 10 years ago, you know, that they're the ones that will appreciate this car. Um, you know, it's just it's just so much more fun to spend time with. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to describe. It sounds like you really liked it, though. What was your favorite thing about it? Was it just you know with the the ride handling balance, or just the way the whole thing seems? The, the way well the integrated? whole thing comes together. You know, that you know, it's got the right balance of of pretty much everything. You know, it it's not overpowered and it's not underpowered. Um, you know, so this is you know the the least um, you know, the, it's it's real. It's current. You know, the current entry point for BMWs in North America, and you know, it, there it's just it just has the right mix of pretty much everything. The style, um, you know, the the you know the size, uh, the weight, the the handling, the ride and handling. You know, even you know with the M Sport package on there and the you know bigger wheels and tires, it was still you know just you know it. it you know, it did great on Michigan roads. You know, it didn't, it didn't pound you and, you know, didn't pound your backside all the time. It was just great to be with. And so this is the, the two thirty I you said. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, so did you have X drive or was it just a rear wheel drive? No, it was just a rear wheel drive, which, which was even better. Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, when, 
you know, going around corners, you know, if you got into it a little bit, you know, you could get the back end to come, you know, to, to help turn in a little, um, you know, had just, just enough of that, you know, not so much that it was going to be, you know, doing anything stupid, but, but, um, you know, j just enough to have really a lot of fun with. And, you know, of course, you know, since it's a, a modern BMW, it's not inexpensive. As soon as you start adding some options onto it, you know, base <laughs> price on a 230i coupe, you know, starts at only 35,000. The one I had was like 47. Well, I mean, that's um, not, that's not too bad. So the M sport package is usually pretty pricey. That's usually like, yeah. I don't know, $3,000 or something ridiculous for, for some things that say M and, and the bigger wheels. Um, that, that's not too bad though. A little $10,000 spread. And, and the other thing is it's really remarkably fuel efficient. You know, I, I got 34 miles per gallon with this thing and but, I was not trying hard. And that's like, that's with the start stop and all that stuff. Like it defaults to on and I'm assuming it, it, but, but that, you know, that assumes that, you know, you actually, you know, stop long yeah, enough yeah. For it to shut the engine off. Yeah, that's true. And it has what an eight <laughs> speed automatic now. Um, yeah, it's an eight speed automatic. It's got paddle shifters, you know, and the transmission's responsive. You know, it, it, you tap the paddles and, you know, it switches gears pretty quickly. Um, you know, so there's, you know, aside, you know, I would have obviously preferred a, a manual, um, but you can't really get one anymore. Um, and, you know, if, you know, if I had, the, you know, I would have had even more fun with it. But, you know, this this was still a lot of fun to drive. Yeah, I, I think that it's. That's what a BMW should be. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, a, it's good to know that they still, they've still got it, you know, in some yeah. ways. Um I remember really, really liking uh, the one series, um, and and when I drove the one series, I think, and this was, gosh, this was back in like 2010, so this was eight years ago or something, um, or it might have even been 2009. So uh, it was just like a lowly 128, and just this, it was the same thing, you know. It, it was just as tidy. Uh, it does what it's supposed to do it feels like a proper bmw and it's also like the you know the, even the thirty five thousand dollars starting price like that's not terrible but it's also for this the size of the car like that it's a little pricey um but i i think that with the bmw doing the proper bmw things it feels like you're getting getting value for that price premium because you could go buy a different brand and, and spend less money and get more content. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if they, if, if, if they still offered it with a manual transmission, you know, I mean, this, this is the car that Casey list would really want over the golf R, <laughs> um, you know, cause Man, it, it we is tried more to, of, we more tried of a classic to, BMW. Tried to talk him out of that golf R and he just he wouldn't listen to the GTI. That's yeah. Oh well. Hey, you know, it's his money. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> it's fine. Uh they're they're yeah. all entertaining. Um I just uh, uh yeah. Um I I'm surprised, I guess, that well, I guess I'm not really surprised that they don't offer it with a manual transmission, but I, I'm surprised that even BMW is kind of thrown in the towel on it. I figured that they would stick it out to the there's like the sort of the very end because they do everything else to sort of like the bmw way right so 
it it just must really not be that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know the the three series, uh, the base three like the three thirty i, or maybe it's the three forty i, you know, and you know the the previous generation M five were among the last uh, ones that they offered, and the, oh, and the M three and M four are the last ones that they offer with a manual transmission, and the new M five you can't get a manual anymore, um, so. You know, it's it's down it's down to the the three series is the last one, um, and you know it's it's just a you know it's just the way the market is. Oh wait a minute, yes you can get it with a manual transmission. Never <gasps> mind, I misspoke. Wow, you you can, right. you can get the two thirty i with a manual. So that I mean that so there there's the the perfect BMW right? Cause Assuming of course you're you're willing to deal with the kinds of issues that Casey was dealing with on his BMW, which you know, even, you know, made it cost a, a hell of a lot of money to uh, to keep it on the road. Well, you but, know, so uh, so like that's but that's not unique to BMW. Like, yeah, it's it's almost it's the price of admission for the premium European brands, because uh, I had some of that same nonsense with the Volvos. It's just that they had no resale value compared to a BMW. Uh, but it was some of the same, you know, glitches, just sophisticated systems. Uh, when they start to age, they start to get finicky and, and flaky. And, you know, I take a step back from the BMWs and, and uh, their contemporaries, and you look at them, and they're almost designed to sail through the typical lease period with mm-hmm. very little care and feeding. So they'll get to 60,000 miles pretty much without a whimper. But once they get up to 75 or 80... they get very 80, expensive very quickly. Yeah, Everything just explodes. And I think that that's because they're designed to not cost anything when the, you know, captive finance arm or, you know, some bank or something owns the car. And then when it becomes a more traditional used car, you're on your own, folks. (laughs) You know, like they they used to have a very much more intensive um upkeep regimen you know it was you know check check these fluids and replace and you know do all these things at you know 15 30 45,000 miles there about you know like there was there was a, a more and now it's like that's like the severe service um recommendations and it's basically like yeah don't do anything and just drive it and make your payments and then yeah renew the and lease turn it in. right um and so you kind of have to expect that and the the thing about BMW is that there's that enthusiast base and some aftermarket support. So it is expensive if you have a shop do it. Every car is expensive when you have a shop do that stuff. When And when they're as sophisticated and sort of, uh, I don't want to say delicate or flaky, but there's a lot of stuff that becomes delicate and flaky on cars like this that you just, you, ha- you have to expect it and attend to it. And, uh, that just it's the price of admission and and it's not not unique to bmw but it's it, yeah it's an annoyance factor but when when you're driving a brand new one you're gonna get like four or five really good years out of it <laughs> yeah just make sure you get the three-year lease and turn it in at the end of three years and move on to something else yeah i mean 248 horsepower uh from the the turbocharged engine that's that's like like you were saying like that's just really well balanced because the car weighs probably like what thirty five hundred pounds or something maybe a little bit more uh thirty thirty three eighty oh, so manual. it's lighter so, 30, okay, 3411 with an automatic 
So, so. thirty three eighty with the main. That's that is. There's your Fox I mean, by, Body by Mustang powered away. W standards. That's that's relatively svelte. Um, you know, it's not the the lightest car in the world, but you know, it's it's also got you know just a really nice size and you know the whole thing's really well balanced. You know, basically fifty fifty front rear. Um, you know that and that's that's one of the advantages you get out of a front engine rear wheel drive car. You know, is you can get a lot. You know, especially with a relatively small engine up front. You know, it's you can get that um, better weight balance. You know, so it's you know it's going to be it's going to feel more responsive. Yeah, yeah. Well, because yeah. yeah, it's it's lightweight, so it'll it'll turn in pretty readily and and stuff that mm-hmm. you know. It, see, I wish you could get them now with still like sixteen inch tires or sixteen inch tires and wheels as, as the max. You know, because like a thirty three hundred pound car does not need twenty inch wheels. There's no no reason you need tires that big. Um, yeah, well, this one was on 18s. So. Okay, 18s is like, all right, that's, that's about as small as you're going to get these days. Yeah, Seven, um, 17s are standard, and this one was on 18s, I think. All right, okay. So the more you talk about it, the better it sounds to me. Like a six-speed manual, I guess it's a coupe only, so if you want the convertible, you can't get it. But um, I, I think the convertible will be a whole different experience. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, especially on something like this, you know, um, you know, it, it's, you know, it's going to be a little more of a tour with the soft top, you know, as opposed to, you know, something like a, a Miata or a Fiat 124, you know, which is, you know, it, it's it's more of a pure sports car with the top off. But um, but this one, um, you know, I think I think as a coupe, this one works really well. All right. And. Did you have anything to say about like the uh, the iDrive 6.0 or the you know? Any, yeah, it works. Like it, you know, it's it's fine. <laughs> it and, you know, I, I I had no. I mean, I had I had no fundamental complaints with it. Um, you know, I I didn't. You know, I I, I tried the nav. You know, the um, the uh, voice recognition in the nav works. You know, like it does in any other BMW. It's not. Uh, you know, it's the the nav interface. You know, is still. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the most uh, intuitive, but I think you know with the with the iDrive controller, you know you can actually get around it pretty quickly. In fact, you know I can get around it much more quickly than I can in a typical touchscreen system. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, in that respect, it's it's good. You know, I, this you know driving this one again proved to me you know why touchscreens do not belong in cars, and you know any car that relies entirely on a touchscreen has made a serious mistake. Um, so I don't you know, know that's, any that's cars. A fundamental that, flaw. Wait, there are cars that rely entirely on touchscreens. What? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, there's <laughs> there's some something. I guess there's some company out in California that builds cars that you know don't have any switchgear in them. Huh. Um, but you know they they have no idea what they're doing anyway. So yeah, wonder anyway, what else they're on. leaving out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, so you liked the BMW um, two two thirty i. Yep. What else? You also said and, that you liked the other I car. Surprise! I, I really liked the car that replaced it in my driveway, which was the, um, the 2018 Kia Rio EX. Uh, so this is you know the latest version of the Rio, just launched uh, this year or, la- or last year. Um, and I think you had a Rio recently too, didn't you? I did. I had a Rio yeah. EX launch edition, so I had the uh, the launch edition package, which you know gives you some of the yeah. red accents in the interior. Yeah, I think. this one this one was also the launch edition. Yeah, so I I really uh, liked it. So it's, it's I'm interested to see what you thought of it. Yeah, you know, there's there's not a whole lot of 
affordable cars, new cars available on the market anymore. You know, they're, they're getting fewer. I mean, well, cars in general are getting fewer and fewer, you know, in between. But, you know, if you if you're looking for something that's affordable, you know, that has a warranty on it, um, you know, that's going to get you where you need to go, it's going to be reliable um, and that doesn't feel like a penalty box. Um, you know, this is, you know, this and like the Honda Fit, you know, I think are your two two of your best options. And, you know, this one, I, re- you know, I really like the Rio. <clears throat> I've, you know, I've, lately, you know, the last several years, pretty much all the Kias I've driven, I've liked, you know, way more than you would expect. Um, I don't know why I say that, you know, because there's, no. there's no reason, you know, with a modern Kia to expect anything else. But I guess I still have in my mind, I still have some of that residue of the 90s when Kia, you know, first launched as an independent brand here in North America. Well, that, but, that may be. I think it, it's also, too, um, some of the other competitors, even like a, a Yaris or something. Like, you know, it's going to be a solid car, but it is also like not really a no. whole lot of joy there. You know, with, yeah. with, with the, and, the, and this one is is actually fun to drive, right? You know, it's a it's a 1.6 liter naturally aspirated four, uh, 130 horsepower. Um, in the LX version, the base version, you can get it with a manual transmission. But you know, if you go for that, uh, you're also going to give up you know a few niceties like um, you know power windows um, and uh, I think cruise control or, or US Bluetooth and USB are missing from that one. Uh, from the base version, but you can get that for fourteen thousand dollars, which is a bargain. Um, you know the EX, you know, starts well, at eighteen, th- and that's that's the sedan though, right? That's fourteen, or is that the? the uh, I think I think you can get either one for that price. I think. Th- oh, oh, can you? Get, all right, it's been a little while since I delved into it, but it, it seemed to me that the hatch was a little bit more. Uh, it that had a, that a may be, device. yeah. But either way, like um, it's still it's still a deal, you know. Yeah, like, you know. But even even if you step up to uh, you know to the LX or the, the EX, I should say, you know, which is the top of the line version, you know, it starts at eighteen thousand four hundred dollars, you know, which is uh, you know by by today's standards is remarkably cheap. Uh, hold on a sec. Yeah, and the other thing and, I found was like. With with the EX, there's not really anything to add. Like they they did put the launch edition package, and uh, it sounds like all the press ones, but that's not even that expensive of a package. Uh, yeah, I mean for that price, you know, you're getting a seven inch touchscreen audio system. Well, okay, we we just had that discussion, but it has <laughs> uh, support for for Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. You get Sirius XM radio in there if if you wanted to use such a thing. There's Bluetooth, uh, you know. A, adjustable seats, you know, split folding rear seats. Um, you know, adults can sit in the, a pair of adults can sit in the back seat, um, you know, fairly comfortably. Um, did you, did get, you, did you actually find that? Cause that was my thought was like the, the back seat seemed small. It seemed like a normal car. It seemed almost like a, like a, a segment up in terms of size for the front seat. And I I felt like they cannibalized the back seat and the maybe the cargo well, space. You know, I mean, c- compared to a fit, it it's definitely not as roomy as a fit. But um, you know, I set this. You know, I'm five eleven, and I set you know the driver's seat where I would normally put it, and I climbed in the back, and you know, I fit in there. My head was not touching the roof. My knees were not touching the seat in front of me. Okay, uh, I didn't have a whole lot of extra clearance, but 
yeah. you know, average size adults could fit, you know, two average size adults can fit in that back seat. You know, you probably don't want to take a cross country road trip in there, but you know, to go out, you know, go out for the evening or something like that, it'll be fine. You know, it's yeah. not, yeah. You, you're not going to be scrunching yourself in there. You know, I mean, in the BMW, you know, first of all, cause it's a coupe and you've got that, you know, forward slanting rear window, you know, the, the back seat's going to be very tight. You, you won't want to be sitting in the back seat for more than a few minutes at most. But, you know, the, the Rio, you know, you can sit in the back seat with no problem. And because it's a hatchback, you know, you can also fold down the seats and you've got tons of cargo space back there. Um, you know, and it's got it's got a surprising amount of features for the price point, you know, for $18,000. Um, and like I said, if you get the launch edition, if, uh, you know, you get red leather, uh, leather, leather front seats, you know, with red accents and red accents on the dashboard. And, um, you know, it, it actually looks surprisingly nice for the price point, you know, I mean, out the door, uh, including the, the delivery charge was just over $20,000. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's, that's, a deal you're not going to find almost anywhere else. And, you know, this is actually, you know, a surprisingly fun car to drive, even with the automatic transmission. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's fairly nimble. You know, it, you know, if you push it hard, it'll understeer. It doesn't have a whole lot of grip, but you know, if you know what you're doing, it's one of those cars that you can, it's light enough that you can toss it around um, and have some fun with it. Uh, you know, without, you know, without, at speeds that aren't going to get you thrown in jail. Yeah, I liked that it didn't have a whole lot of grip because I could drive it aggressively, shall we yeah, say? Yeah, you could drive it to its limits. Yeah, um, like on an on-ramp at 40. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, because the, and the suspension is relatively simple, um, so it's you you know where the limits are you can you can find them it's not it's not that sophisticated uh and that doesn't mean that it's rough or anything but it, i think it does have a beam axle in the back which you know it it brings it, back it has a beam those, axle in the back but it does have four wheel disc brakes which the nissan yeah. kicks that i drove a couple of weeks ago had drum brakes in the rear really they're doing drums yeah, the, the, still yeah the, the kicks has drum brakes why would you uh, do drive so i don't understand like they're it, cheaper and lighter are they really cheaper though oh yeah yeah, they're definitely cheaper than discs. But there's more components. Um, but it's more expensive to manufacture calipers. Um, it's you know, it's more it's a more complex system to to do disc brakes. Huh. I just I yeah. would assume that like because drums are so much older and you got all those like, springs and wheel cylinders and well, you know, the other thing is especially on the rear wheels, you know, for the for the parking brake, um that that actually adds some extra complexity. Oh, that's right. You've got so to put to a stupid disc brakes. Yeah. You know, you might, it, depending on how you do it, it might have, a, it might be a drum and hat or yeah. the caliper may have a mechanism in there that, you know, ratchets the piston out uh, when you pull the parking brake lever. So it, it does add some cost and complexity. Uh, so doing drum brakes is actually a lot easier on the rear and a lot cheaper. Huh. Yeah. I mean, they don't perform as well, but um, but they're, you know, they, they're definitely cheaper. I mean, so yeah, drums, it's, not to go on a complete tangent. They, they do work. Uh, and oh, they, yeah. they self-energize. It's harder stuff. to modulate. Yeah. And in, in the, in the rear, they're, they're fine. Whatever. Yeah. And since you're, you know, your front brakes are doing, especially on a front wheel drive car like this, your front brakes are doing 90, you know, 90 to 95% of the work most of the time. Um, so, you know, your, your rears are just kind of along for the ride anyway, most of the time. But, um, you know, 
I, you know, ideally, you know, you want discs all around because discs are much more linear in their behavior. You know, you, you increase the pressure by a hundred PSI and you get a certain amount of, of extra brake torque and you add another hundred PSI and you still get the same amount of incremental brake torque with drums. It's very nonlinear. Yeah. Um, don't they, don't every, they need that? Like a little bit of extra pressure gives you more, more right. and more torque. They need that like initial shot to move all the stuff. And then because they self-energize, you, yeah. like you said, they're, they're a challenge to modulate because they're actually like, they break harder and harder and harder kind of on their own. So. Yeah. And, and on the rear, on the rear brakes, on the rear axle, that can actually be a real problem. I mean, who doesn't uh, like to you, spin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but, you know, of course, for that price point, you know, you do even even on the EX, you do give up a few things like, you know, you don't get a push button start. You have an actual physical key that you have to insert into a slot and turn to start the car. Oh, the horror. Uh, uh, I know. It's, it's, it, I will say, though, you know, because it's, we it's always a major get cars. sacrifice. But, you know, I mean, these are the things we do for our listeners. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I will say because we get cars with push button starts all the time now it, and then like the keyless entry and stuff, it does take you. It, sometimes it takes the whole week and you never get used to the fact that like, oh, yes, I need to pull out this device and manipulate it to get into the car and then to start the car. Well, it, it does, this one does have keyless entry, so you know you yeah. press the button on the on the key and it unlocks the doors. But um, then then you do have to you know flip. It's got you know the little uh, switchblade key thing where the blade pops out of the fob, and uh, then you stick that in and and do your thing with it. Yeah, that's it. Takes a little while to get used to again. That's all. Yeah, and you know the fuel economy on this thing was great. You know, got. 35 miles per gallon, which was better than the label. Um, you know, there's, there's really not a whole lot to complain about. You know, I mean, if, like I say, if you if you want a new car that is very affordable, you know, if you don't have the budget for for a BMW or or a lot of other mainstream cars, you know, this is a great choice. And, you know, Kia, uh, for the last three years in a row, they have ranked on top in the uh, J.D. Power initial quality survey. And they've also been, uh, you know, Hyundai has also, you know, in the last couple of years has moved up into second place. So, you know, their their quality scores are really good, you know, be, better than, you know, any of the uh, the premium brands from either Japan or Germany. Yeah, I, I, like they they uh, make a good product and every one that I drive, I'm impressed with, you know, I will even go as far as to say I like the Rio better than the fit even though you're giving up some of the sort of flexible interior, you know, out, outfitting or just capability. I mean, the Rio just seems like such a sort of honest little car and it's just, it's straightforward to drive. Everything works like it's supposed to. And it, it was, it's enjoyable to drive. And I know I like the fit. It's still fun to drive, but I, I don't know. It, it's almost a, for whatever reason, uh, maybe it's just that I, I think the, the, the Rio just generally like looks and feels a little better than the Honda. Uh, it's been mm -hmm. a while um, since I've been in a fit too. So um, I don't know. Where, yeah, where the, the, Re the new Rio is a good looking little car too. It's, you know, yeah. it, it's pretty slick. Yeah. All right. Well, All right, what about mean, you ring endorsements? Um, so last week uh, I had a, um, let, me, let me, let me pull it up. Cause I almost forgot. Uh, I had a, <laughs> I had a Volkswagen Beetle convertible. Um, and I almost forgot because everybody else has forgotten about it too. 
you know, the last time I had a beetle, I said the same thing I'm going to say now. Like, yeah, well, you had the beetle dune. Yeah. Uh, this car, you know, it's like it served its purpose. Um, I feel like it's no longer relevant. Uh, you know, the, the people who remembered the original beetle are the ones who were excited enough for the, the you know, relaunch of the beetle uh, back 20 years ago now. Um, and it's, you know, everything the beetle does, the golf does better because it's a little bit, you know, more squared up in its shape and just uh, overall it's, it doesn't make so many sacrifices for, for form. Um, but, you know, if you like the style and the, the sort of the kitschiness of the beetle, yeah, it's, it's there. Um, and there's, I mean, there's really nothing to complain about with this convertible. It's nicely finished. It has an insulated top. It's a power top with one touch. It latches the header and everything. It's one of the rare sort of affordable four place convertibles. So that's nice. Uh, you know, and it drives like a Volkswagen. So it's, it's pretty solid on the road. Uh, still don't like the DSG, um, like at uh you know like parking lot speeds and low speeds it it has this real aggressive sort of launch off the line and it it there's still these like little elements of of snatchiness to how it sort of operates in a in a low speed environment that just bug me you know i just i just wanted like a a manual where i can just let the clutch out a little bit and then put it in neutral and coast and stuff like like you would do but uh is there is there even a manual available on the convertible? I don't think there's a manual available at all on the Beetle anymore. Um, but I, we, like we can we can look while we chat, but yeah, um, y- you know it's it's a Beetle convertible. It, there's not a whole lot to say about it. It's it's just a, yeah. You know, well, it, and you know it's now going into its uh, final edition anyway because Volkswagen has announced that 2019 will be the last model year for the for the current Beetle. Yeah, well, I mean, sales have been cutting in half, been cut in half every year for the last however many years. It's just this year's sales are half of what the year before was, and which were half of what the year before that was. Like, that's been the pattern for Beatles sales. And, you know, it's it's hard to... Well, I mean, the, the good news is that, you know, when you keep cutting it in half like that, you start to reach an asymptote, you know, the, the, the relative reduction every year can, goes down. <laughs> as, you, as you approach zero, you know, I mean, that, line, that curve flattens out. Didn't think of it that way. Uh, <laughs> at, at a certain point, you have zero buyers for the yeah. car you have bothered to make, um, which is a problem for them. Uh, which you is know, why it's going away after the 29 model year. Yeah. And, uh, model year. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's fine. Like, it's it is what it is. It's a stylistic exercise at this point. And I think any enthusiast sort of like, stuff has sort of been excised out of it, you know, like exercised out of it. There's, there's not really any sort of high performance variant, you know, like it'd be great if it was set up with golf R drivetrain, that would be kind of interesting. Well, it, 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 it does nominally have the same engine that's in the golf R it's a two liter four cylinder turbo. Yeah. It's uh, the, unfortunately, the unlike EA. the golf R it only has 174 horsepower. Yeah. It feels really down. Like it's not, it's not slow and it's not, it's just, it doesn't feel winded, but it's, it's not. Well, I mean, you this, know. this is the same, this is the same output as, you know, this, this version of the engine that's in the, the Touareg. 
which I drove a few months back, you know, and in the Touareg, you know, I found it incredibly underwhelming. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> guess it's like, I just expect more out of that engine because I know it can do more. And right. I, I don't know. That's like, that's naturally aspirated power levels. <laughs> so why bother yeah, well, with the turbo? Especially for a two liter. I mean, you, you got to wonder why, why they even bother to put a two liter turbo in there. Why not just, you know, 174 horsepower is what you typically get. You know, somewhere in that 170 to 180 range is what you typically get from a naturally aspirated two liter. So why even bother with a turbo? You know, and it's not like you're getting huge gobs of torque either. I mean, it's only 184 foot pounds. This is this is about the same output as the 1.5 liter in our Honda Civic. Yeah, like, and then the Civic is probably torquier. That probably has a broader torque curve because of the you know the the smaller engine with the turbo on it. Just that tends to be the thing. Um, right, you know, and, and that, I think that's why, you know, this engine doesn't feel particularly good in any application. Yeah, it just, I mean, and it's fine in the convertible because, like, again, it's kind of one of those, like, who cares? You're not, you don't have the convertible to go fast. Uh, and the rest of the chassis is, you know, it's a Golf chassis, so it, it it does okay. But it's, you know, the Beetle is set up like it was a, it's a Boulevardier of Boulevardier, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's a, cruiser. It's a car to it's go a to cruiser. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did like the design touches, you know, it is nice. It had like the wood look trim across the dash and, you know, the ergonomics are very good in it. Um, the seats are mostly comfortable, you know, <laughs> like yeah. I did find it interesting that, um, with the convertible well, usually does a good job with things like that, you know, especially seats yeah. are, their seats are usually really good. Yeah. I mean, it, there's not, there's not, I'm not really a whole lot to complain about either. It's just like uh, overall, it's kind of like a, it's a shrug. And that's, I think that's why it's dying with a whimper. It's, it doesn't even, me as a Volkswagen enthusiast, like those were, that was the first air cold VWs were sort of my, my entree into real car enthusiasm. And I just, I, I, I can't get worked up for the Beetle. So that tells me something. Uh, maybe it's, maybe it's me. I don't know. But, um, yeah. I also thought it was interesting with the convertible, um, the seats, uh, when you, they're vulnerable to getting, uh, water spots, like in the, in the rain and stuff. So the, the car, the, so it stains you know, if it gets, if you get spots on there. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they're like actual stains, but you could definitely see that like there was water spots on the seat from where, and I figured it out cause it rained while I had it. You open the door and the water comes off the roof and it lands on the seat. Oh, like the okay. the lower seat. Yeah, like I thought somebody so had taken it to the beach. The the, gu- the 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 sort the sort of gutter that's on the top is not really draining the water the right way. Yeah, well, I mean, it's I, it's a convertible, so I mean, I think if the water just yeah, well, goes I mean, where it, it goes. If you but, look at them, you know, there's usually you know they they try to make you know they they fold the fabric around to create you know a rain gutter on there, and but you know it doesn't always it's not always as effective as you'd like it to be. Uh, yeah, I think that was the case. It was not as effective. Um, it, you know, it, but it is. It's it's a convertible for now. This is one of the few convertibles that's under thirty thousand dollars that will seat more than two people, um, and and do it in a you know a little bit of a fashion. Um, but yeah, I don't think you can get a manual with it. Uh, and and I honestly I don't think anybody cares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, and like you said, I mean, I, I think in general, you know, 
people have largely stopped caring about the uh, the beetle, which is why sales have been dropping and, and it's going away that next year. Um, although there are some reports that uh, it will return in a few years, but as an EV next time. That's fine. You know what? Like, bring it back when it makes sense, or if they need to make a splash. Like, I, I I'm fond of the beetle uh, in concept. Well, you know what would be fun is if they did a, an electric beetle uh, and made it rear wheel drive. You know, yeah, put the put the motor in the back. That that's. I mean, and I think that if as we start to see more electric uh, platforms, um, that kind of thing may be more more flexible because uh, you, you you're not packaging the same kind of a powertrain as an internal combustion engine, right? So you have a little bit more size flexibility. Um, and, and so we'll, we'll, we'll be able to see maybe some more of those different stylistic exercises happen with the same component set. Um, maybe. Maybe it's just the same problem, just a different shape. I don't know. Yeah. But. Well, while, while we're, before we leave the topic of the Beetle, I've got a little uh, side uh, story here. Um for for those that aren't aware, you know, back when the uh, before the 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 new Beetle was reintroduced as a production model, there was a concept car um, in the uh, in the mid nineties. The concept one. The, the concept one. I did. And it was in high school art class. I did a linoleum block uh, print. Oh, did you of the concept <laughs> okay. one? Yeah, with I carved it well, out with my knife and yeah. Well, the the designers of the concept one were uh, Freeman Thomas and uh, Jay Mays. Um, and, uh, both of whom went on to, uh, to join Ford after their 10 years, uh, with the Volkswagen group, um, Freeman Thomas, uh, for many years led the, uh, uh, Ford's West coast design studio, their advanced design studio. And Jay Mays actually rose to become, uh, the VP of global design at Ford. So he was in charge of all design, uh, for, for a number of years. Uh, until he retired uh, at the end of 2013. Um, anyway, uh, Mr. Mays has uh, resurfaced in the past few days. Um, while I was out in California the other day, uh, an announcement came across the wire that uh, he has a new job. Um, can you guess where Jay Mays is now? I do know the answer is I don't know the exact name of the company, but I know it's an appliance company. Yes, Jay Mays, uh, the designer of the Volkswagen Concept One and and longtime Ford design boss, is now the chief design officer for Whirlpool. So Whirlpools are now going to look like Volkswagens with Whirlpool cues because that's what he yeah, did exactly. at Ford. Basically, like the yep. Ford Five Hundred. If you ever wondered why it looked like a contemporary Passat, was because Jay Mays was like, make it look like a Passat with Ford cues. Yes, but taller. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think that bulbous. was in. That's the rumor. I don't. I was well, not I actually think, there. Yeah, I think. I think you know they they kind of built in some of the uh, some of the beetle curvature into the roof line of that one. You know, so it was, it was kind of a mix of a uh, of, of beetle and Audi A6. You know, but blown up even more. Yeah, I mean, there's a. I, I don't really have anything to say about it, but Jay Mays, like any good, uh, I think automotive design figurehead has a bit of controversy that follows him around about whether he's really, really good or he's, you know, sort of just coasting overrated and yeah. And copying what other folks have done. And again, I don't actually have anything to say about it because I don't think you can comment on that from the outside looking in 
when you rise to a design director, you're a leader. You may actually do very little design, but your job at that point is to inspire and motivate and, yeah, the team. Exactly. So, yeah, and you know, the, the reality is that, you know, in, in the automotive world, um, there is never just one person that's responsible for the design of a vehicle, especially, I mean, with, with rare exceptions, you know, at some very small companies, you know, uh, for example, you know, Franz von Holzhausen at Tesla, I think, you know, he is largely responsible for the shape of Tesla's, um, you know, Henrik Fisker at, you know, at his companies, you know, he's, he's been largely responsible for what, you know, his, his two companies have created, but in general, you know, at any larger automaker, there's never just a single person, you know, I mean, there, there might be one person who, uh, you know, typically the way, the way the design process works is, you know, they will, you know, a, a whole bunch of design, all the designers in the studio will submit sketches, um, and, you know, from those, they will select some themes um, and then that, you know, the, the, the theme that ultimately be, gets chosen for production then gets worked on by a whole bunch of people to refine it, you know, to make turn it into a production model. So there may be one person who came up with the basic concept of what the car is going to look like, but ultimately there's, you know, a whole bunch of hands involved in what, you know, what the final version looks like to, you know, for better or worse. Um uh, and, you know, that's that's just the reality of it. You know, yeah. it's you can't you can't do it with just one person anymore. Well, and, you know, any good designer is going to have hits and misses, right? You have a career. Mm -hmm. You hopefully it's long. There's going to be some and stuff that's more successful if, if than you're, others. If you don't have some misses, you know, as a designer, then you're not pushing yeah. hard enough. Yeah. And, um, you know, you the know. other guy who who I think consistently comes in for criticism, which I, I feel is really undue, is is uh, Chris Bangle. You know, like. Mm hmm. He, he, yes, I'm not in love I mean, with he, everything he did he's come done. up with, with, you know, with that seven series. Yeah. But, and, know, there, there were some follow on vehicles that actually were pretty decent. So, so look at it now. OK, that seven series. Yes. When it when it debuted, it was not the most elegant thing. Um, But it moved by the end of its run. It was better. They had cleaned it up and that kicked off the E90s. Mm -hmm. And the E60s, and you look at those now, and an E65 series is a really attractive car in its own own way. And you know the the E90 is again, it's also attractive. So, and it's, even it's, even the uh, the first Z4, um, you know, would you know? I think that has actually aged really well. You know, a neighbor around the corner has one. And, you know, I, I, think, I think it's actually a really good looking car. I, yeah, I love the Z4. I love that continuous line that goes from the headlights all the way across the top of the fenders and down the door. Like, it's just that one sketch line. And it just it, it, it's it's actually it's a bone line, I think, is what they call it in the studios. Um, but it's it's lovely because it, it, it just frames the whole, you know, front two thirds of the car in this nice, graceful arc. It's lovely. Mm -hmm. It's a nice piece of design. I have a lot of time to look at design when I sit in traffic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah. Well, uh, you had something else, too. What else did you uh, drive? Yeah, sticking with BMW. Uh, I've currently got an X2 um, xDrive 28i. So I, I don't know what it's priced at. I haven't finished out my time with it. Um, I'm assuming this is going to astound me when I look at the sticker. I'm assuming it's going to come in at like 50 because it's got the, you know, it's got a nice interior. It's got the M 
sport appearance package stuff inside, which is again, it's expensive. Um, but man, I really like the X2. Uh, I think it's it's really well done. And again, like your your thoughts about the um, the two series that you had. Uh, you know, it, it's a BMW that hasn't forgotten what BMWs are supposed to do. It's, it's a solid driving car. It's I think it's handsomely designed. I think, you know, I think it's good looking. It's finished nicely inside. Um, you know, it, it, it has a lot of the things that I'd expect from BMW. Um, the controls are pretty similar. You know, they it feels like a three series, five series, seven series, you know, you know where the things are, you know what they're supposed to do. That consistency is really nice. Uh, and it's not the sportiest thing, but uh, you bend it into a turn and, and get on the power. Like if you're coming off a cloverleaf ramp or something and, and it'll, it'll transfer power rearward and do whatever it wants to with torque vectoring and you can feel it rotate the car. So it has actually some of that sportiness to it as well. You know, it's not, I'm sure it's not as good to drive as, as the, uh, the 230i that you drove, but it's, it's also, it's not bad, especially when you consider that I think this shares pretty much everything with the mini countrymen, right? It does, yeah. It's built on the same platform as the Countryman, and also the uh, the European um, one series, uh, which we don't get over here, and and the uh, the two series Sport Tourer, I think it's called, which is a, a taller wagonish hatch, you know, kind of a, a C Max style vehicle, uh, which we also don't get over here. Um, but yeah, it's so it's a it's a transverse engine front drive slash all wheel drive platform. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, you, you're not going to be fooled that it's a rear wheel drive BMW, but it, it's also like, it's a, it's essentially a front drive hatch that doesn't drive terribly. You know, it, it rides and handles with, with some, uh, some grace. Uh, it, the ride's a little stiff. Uh, and part of that's the run flat tires, of course, and probably the larger wheels for, uh, the, the M package that it's got. Um, it so has, does yours and, have, uh, the heads up display and navigation? Yes. Yes. Okay. So yeah, that's that's the M Sport Premium tier, which starts at forty five six fifty. That's a whole lot of money for this thing. It is. It's. it's I mean, it's nice, but I mean, forty five grand. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, it it is is quite nice though. Like, and I I like that. It, like, you're the the two thirty has that that funny spring loaded shifter. This is you know again, it's not the highest trim level or highest model in the range. So, you know, the shifter on this, it's a standard kind of, you pull it backwards for all the gears and you push it forward for park. Makes sense. It's nice. That's uh, the way it should be. Yeah. I, it's familiar. Um, you know, some of the, uh, the criticisms I have is like the rear, rear visibility is not very good because of the small rear window. Um, I guess some people have noticed headroom complaints again. Like I'm, I'm not a real good person to test that because I fit in everything. <laughs> so um not a not a problem for me the cargo space is is decent uh you know this is this is about the size of what you would get from a, a you know compact wagon which is essentially what it is um mm-hmm. i don't like the start stop because the transverse engine you know you feel all that driveline lash um because it's flopping front to back so you it, you know you feel it um but it it gets decent fuel economy for for doing that so uh, I wish it had, especially at $45,000, I wish it had dynamic cruise control, which it does not have. Um, 
you know, it feels like there's still some features to go here, which Again, that 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 is available as an extra option for uh, for, come, for another seven hundred bucks. Come on, that is all the money. <laughs> uh, and I even like the little the the little badge on the C pillar that I know the internet was hateful about. I it's a it's just a detail, and it's fine. Well, as usual, the internet was wrong. Well, I mean, I think the two thousand two set a badge there, didn't they? All the noise. Uh, I believe cars? so. Yeah. Yeah. So whatever. They're going to do what they do, and you're either going to accept it now or accept it later, because that's how it works. So get used to it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, again, it's it's a BMW. There's not a whole lot to say. I do like it a lot better than the Mini that it's based on. Um, and, you know, the Countryman is, is good. I did also, I liked the Countryman E um, a lot better. I think one of the things that I liked about the Countryman E that that is nice is it didn't do so much of the sort of engine flopping around bit because it would step off with the electric motor and then it would, right. it would fire the engine once you're rolling, which just feels a little smoother. So if they want to port that powertrain over to the, the uh, X2, they, they could have a thing. I think it's only a matter of time before that vehicle appears. Yeah. So uh, th- thank you to everybody who lent us their cars. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, should, we should talk about uh, an, another electrified German now um yeah so um you know they're they're starting to come out of the woodwork um you know the the new premium uh evs from uh, from europe uh you know last week or you know, a couple weeks ago when we last recorded we, we talked about the mercedes-benz eqc uh which was unveiled in stockholm um and this week i was in uh seattle or not seattle in san francisco on monday uh for the global reveal of the new mercedes uh getting all confused <laughs> the audi e-tron quattro um uh. which uh, you know, it's it's a it's a crossover. Uh, sli- you know, it's in between a Q5 and a Q7, closer to Q7. So it's about three inches shorter than a Q7, two row, five seater, um, and it looks very much like the concept that we saw three years ago at the Frankfurt Motor Show. Uh, it has changed very little from that. The grill's been tweaked a bit, but other than that, the shape and everything else about it is pretty much the same as what we saw three years ago, uh, which is, is not a bad thing. I mean, it's a, it's a decent looking, you know, midsize crossover. Uh, you know, if you like the Audi design language, you will, you know, you'll be quite happy with this. And it, it, its its shape is actually very similar to the new Q8, which re, which just launched uh, the week before. Um, uh, although the Q8 is actually slightly longer than a Q7, so you have similar kind of shape on the Q, on the e-tron and the Q8. Um, just one is is a little bit smaller. Um, well, and you know, then, and Audi is excellent at. Uh, you know, they're they're another one that they're just fantastic at defining a design language and then propagating it across everything in a, in a way right. that's just really consistent. And I, I, I know there were some complaints about how underwhelming this is because it's not a wacky looking thing. Um, but I think that to me, that actually works in its favor. It's just it's a normal, normal car with electric propulsion. Um you know, and actually, in, in person, it actually looks it, it's actually looks really good. You know, it's yeah. it, the the fenders, you know, have a little bit of a, a bulge to them. It's got a fairly muscular look to it. And, you know, it rides on, 
you know, 20 inch wheels with 255 section tires on there. So, I mean, they're, <laughs> That's an enormous they're tire. this thing's, this thing's on some big tires, um, yeah. which, uh, sounds like they're, they're needed, uh, to support the curb weight of this thing, which is, um, not exactly a lightweight. Well, yeah, uh, that there's that. And like the, for the size too, the total luggage capacity, uh, is, is like 28 cubic feet i guess that's good but i don't know i thought it would be more well, what they've what they've done is you know they've they put the uh the, the rear seat further back you know so you've got lots of leg room in both the front and oh, rear oh, seats I see. I see. um so you know this, this is a little bigger like i said it's, it's bigger than a q5 a little bit smaller than a q7 and there's no third row available in this one so you've got that that cargo space and the the you know the rear hatch um kind of leans forward a little bit, you know, which gives it a little bit more, you know, coupe like a little little sportier appearance uh than um you know than than the Q seven in particular. The Q seven back, you know, the the back of the greenhouse is a little more squared off and boxy compared to this one. Yeah, well, you know, and the good thing for Audi is uh it makes their their signature quattro all wheel drive and torque vectoring almost too easy to pull off, right? Because it's it, they're using the electric motors now for a good part of that instead of shafts and gears and yep. differentials and stuff. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, fortunately, because, you know, the, the entire space between the uh, front motor and the rear motor is filled with battery, um, you know, they're you know, they, they don't have to have a drive shaft going from the front to the rear. Uh, you just have the two motors. You know, it's a very similar layout to what you get in a Tesla, uh, you know, it, and and like you know what we're increasingly seeing in all new EVs, you know, with the underfloor battery, uh, the the battery pack is uh, about 13 inches thick. Um, it's got um, 30 uh, 32 modules in there with 12 cells in each one, lithium ion cells, 95 kilowatt hours of capacity in there. Is that a lot comparatively? I'm I'm trying to draw in a blank in terms of like for the, that that size and weight. Uh, and just, I guess, among the competitive set, it's, it, yeah, it, it's comparable, um, you know, to the, uh, you know, the, the, the top Teslas right now are hundred kilowatt hour packs. So slightly, slightly more capacity, but the, the weight is in that same range. It's in that 1500 pound range. Um, so, you know, the, and this one, you know, is actually also designed to be, uh, serviced. And, you know, I talked to the engineers from Audi, uh, while I was there. You know, and they they wanted to put a big emphasis on on safety and durability of the battery. Um, so, you know, one of the things that they've done, you know, you've got these 32 um, modules in there and the the case that they're mounted in. There's actually partitions between each module. So they they probably could have condensed this a little bit more if they if they wanted to. But what they did was they've effectively isolated each of the modules from each other so that, you know, if something does happen in, in any one module, if there's some kind of thermal runaway in one module, it'll minimize the risk of it spreading to the rest of the battery. Oh, that's clever. You know, yeah. and that's always the question, like when uh, when automakers bring their, their electric wares around, um, I can always count on the the one hand going up and talking about the sort of the longevity of the battery and the safety of the battery and I think the honest answer is like at this point they really they're on it they've thought about it way more than you ever will and uh, especially for you know a 
an automaker like Audi, which is, you know, Volkswagen. So they have a lot of lines to support. They do a very good job about making sure that it's going to last. The battery is going to last a long time and be, be solid and safe. Um, so, yeah, I, I just don't feel like that's a that's not a concern for me anymore with an electric yeah. car is, is the battery. Like, right. And, you know, um, the uh, the e-tron has support for 150 kilowatt charging, um, which you know is a bit higher than what you get with superchargers right now. Superchargers right now from Tesla max out at 120 kilowatts. Uh, so they, you know, t- uh, Audi says you can charge it, you know, up to 80 percent charge, you know, from fully depleted state in about 30 minutes. Um, and next year, when the you know, and th- this is this design is kind of an interim design uh, that they wanted to get out. Um, you know, next generation vehicles will be built off the same architecture that's being used for the um, being developed for the Porsche Taycan that comes out next year. And, you know, that one is actually has support for 350 kilowatt charging. But, um, you know, Audi's partnering with uh, Electrify America, which is another division of Volkswagen of America. Uh, Electrify America is the company that was formed uh, out of the uh, Dieselgate settlement to to, uh, invest two billion dollars into EV charging infrastructure in the U.S., and so they're in the process of you know they've started uh, building out their network of stations, and they're, what they're doing um, is they're following a, a similar kind of approach to what Tesla did with the supercharger stations, where instead of concentrating them on the east and west coasts and just a smattering in the middle of the country, they're actually doing a, a more even distribution across the entire country and and hitting you know I think. Uh, it's something like 120 miles, you know, every 120 miles along all the, the major uh, highways, uh, there will be an Electrify America station. And, and all of the stations will have, you know, these are by uh, middle of next year, they will have uh, 500 locations up and running. So are those, um, are those like every 120 miles east, west or north, south or both? Uh, basically spread uh, most uh, pretty much east west you know okay. so um, you know initially like the first phase they're going they're building out in several phases over the next three or four years uh, so the first phase you know will be 500 stations across 40 states and 17 major metropolitan areas and every one of those locations will have depending on where it is and you know what the expected demand is they'll have from four to ten charging points uh, so, you know, in places where they expect more demand, you know, they'll have 10 charging charging ports at each of these stations with support for both 150 and 350 kilowatt charging. Uh, so they'll support the, the Porsches that are coming as well. And, uh, yeah, by, by the middle of next year, um, they expect to have uh, 500 stations either running or in, uh, in under construction and uh, running by the end of the year. And yeah, so, then, like, that's... That's like the the last step, right? To to adopt more widespread adoption of EVs. You know, people have proven that they will buy them, and they will they will like them in a, in a very enthusiastic way. Uh, it's just getting them charged and being able to do that cross, you know, coast to coast drive. So that's why I was asking, like, you know, you, I could leave here in Boston, and if there's one every 120 miles, like I know I'm I'm not going to have a problem. Um, right. And, and this thing's going to have, you know, initially it's going to have about a 250 mile, 240 to 250 mile range. Uh, so you'll be able to go just about anywhere with one of these. Does the DC and the DC fast charging like that beats up the battery, though, right? That's not something you want to do a ton of. 
Right. Or well, it, and that's that's always the risk with DC fast charging, especially when you get into these higher higher power charging uh, systems. There, you know, there's a risk of degrading the battery. Uh, but you know, Audi, you know, said they put a lot of effort into the thermal management of the battery to make sure it doesn't get too hot. Uh, you know, it's a liquid cooled battery, and um, you know, as it gets up to eighty percent, you know, then it starts to taper off, uh, and the charging rate slows down to make sure you don't overcharge yeah. it and cause because it's usually you know if you're going to cause any damage to the battery, it's usually you know at the top end as you start to get full. Um, you know, when you overcharge it, that's when damage tends to occur. So. Nice. Um, yeah, so you know, hopefully that shouldn't be a problem. Uh, we'll we'll see. You know, once they come out, um, they've they've actually been in production. They started production uh, about two and a half weeks ago at their plant in Brussels, which is now uh, that plant is dedicated to building EVs, uh, and it will be building you know this Etron Quattro that we saw this week, as well as the Etron Sportback, which will be launching next year, uh, which is on the same platform, but it has you know the sloping hatchback body style uh, like the A7 and A5 Sportback. Um, and uh, when you when you buy one of these, uh, Amer American customers that buy an e-tron uh, will get a thousand kilowatt hours of complimentary DC fast charging at Electrify America stations. And then beyond that, you know, they'll have, um, you know, various plans, you know, so you can buy buckets of uh, of kilowatt hours, you know, or, you know, or or just pay a la carte when, uh, you know, if you're if you're not planning to use it frequently. So. You know, it's interesting that they've they've put so much effort and you know funding behind basically making up for the diesel scandal. Although this seems like stuff that wasn't really kicked off by the diesel. Like this stuff was underway. Yeah, I mean, the development of this vehicle actually started in 2013. Yeah, so, so the diesel scandal shifted money around basically to say, "All right, look, it, we're sorry." It sped up a lot of projects. Yeah. Um, but like that, I honestly, like that's the key is the charging infrastructure has to be there. And, um, and I'm thinking even like, as we start to get more of these as journalists, like I'm going to have to figure out how I'm going to charge all these EVs that are going to wind up in the fleet. Right. Um, I, I don't have a garage, so I don't have a level two charger. Uh, so that'll, that'll be interesting. You can put so, one on the outside wall. Yeah. I'll just, you know what? I'll. Again, I'll just get the jumper cables and I'll do a tie-in on the, the uh, right above the fuse box, whatever. All yeah. two hundred amps, just. Zzz. Um, what could go wrong? Yeah, nothing, nothing. Uh, Price-wise, you're so, you're paying what? You're paying Tesla money for this. Which uh, is fine. Actually, a little less than Tesla money. Uh, okay. So, base price uh, in the U.S. is going to be seventy-four eight for the the I think it's the Prestige or. Premium Plus, yeah. and then the Prestige model goes for eighty one thousand, uh, eighty one and change, and then they're also doing um, nine hundred and ninety nine copies of the Launch Edition, which has uh, special paint color and a few other options. It's basically loaded. You know, everything is included in that one, and that one's going to go for eighty six grand. And you know, because we're talking Volkswagen here, who you know hasn't sold that many e golfs yet. Um, you know, they're all of these for for at least the next couple of years are going to be eligible for the full seventy five hundred dollar federal oh, tax credit plus whatever know, state and local incentives you get. That's a really good point. Tesla has run out. 
of that. Yeah, there's uh, their phase out starts on January 1st. So they've they've hit the 200,000 sales cap. So from January 1st, um, you know, their their tax credit drops to 3750 for the next 6 months and then the second half of next year it drops to 1875. Um, but uh Volkswagen and and Audi will still have the full 7500 available for a while yet. So that brings that brings the price of even the the launch edition down to under $80,000. Right. And you know, a Model X starts at, you know, in the mid uh, like 85,000 now, I think. And you know, most of them are going for well over 100,000, you know, once you start optioning them up with all the uh you know, adding, you know, autopilot and all the other things that they offer on there. It, you know, the average transaction prices on a Model X are up to around $100,000 or more now. And you I, can actually, if you go for ludicrous mode and all the other stuff, you know, you can get it up to about 140 Yeah, you know, and I'm sorry, but the, the e-tron is way prettier than the Model X. Oh, yeah. Um, the X is kind of well, ungainly. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to uh, somebody from Audi, uh, Mark Danke, who's the uh, communications manager for Audi of America. And, you know, one of the things that he brought up is they don't actually see the e-tron as uh, a competitor for the Model X or the S for that matter. Um, You know, they don't don't see themselves as a competitor to any of the current Tesla products um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, the... The Tesla fans are unlikely to be swayed anyway. You know, they're, yep. they want Teslas, uh, at least a, a significant proportion of them do. And, you know, if you look at the segment, you know, where this particular vehicle, the, the, this initial e-tron Quattro is competing, you know, it's, it's a bit smaller than a Model X. You know, it's only a two row versus a three row, um, you know, and it, it's a, it's a, I think it's about eight inches shorter, you know, so it's a, it's a smaller, it's, you know, basically a size class down from the Model X. And certainly, you know, in terms of pricing, you know, a maxed out e-tron will just barely get you to where a 75 kilowatt hour Model X starts at uh, in the mid eighties. So, you know, what, you know, the, the way they're looking at this is rather than necessarily conquesting sales from Tesla, they're, you know, they're more interested in keeping uh, the people that want an Audi. And, you know, the the tagline that they used when they unveiled the car on Monday night was um, electric goes Audi. So, you know, what you've got here is a car that has all of the, the usual Audi DNA in it in terms of the way it looks, the way it drives, the features and functionality that it has. Um but it happens to be electric. So what, you know, what they're doing is they're targeting Audi customers and, you know, trying to expand the the market for EVs to people who want something different from a Tesla. Uh, but, you know, still want something that's stylish and, you know, premium and it has all the features that they expect in it. So I, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but, you know, I think I think that's actually probably a smart move, uh, at least initially, you know, for the first vehicle or two that they, you know, for the next couple of years until they get themselves more established as uh, a serious player in the EV marketplace. Yeah, well, and I think, too, like uh, because the diesel issue has been such a thing, um, those who want efficiency in their Audi SUV are going to have a place to go now. And, you know, the, the Q7 TDI was not cheap. Uh, no. So, uh, 
you know, if you can't get that, you can get this. And it's sort of, it's got that conversation starter uh, powertrain, just like a TDI, right? And it, it, like, because images is part of it are just sort of having that like neat technology kind of thing. Audi has made its bones with some technology. And, and I think that that still holds true, uh, you know, where they, they say we, we do it the Audi way. We do it like no, nobody else. And I think that's important to the buyers too. Uh, you know, it just, it, it looks really well turned out. I have no doubt that the, the materials and fit and finish are going to be top notch. Uh, cause it's Audi. <laughs> they know how to screw a car together. Um, yeah. So, and like the co- competition is just really starting to, to heat right up with all of these, uh, different EVs, you know, Jaguar, now Mercedes, now Audi, there's, there's Porsche a lot in a of couple choice. months and yeah and you know we saw the you know the bmw i next uh also um but we don't really need to talk about that one um <laughs> one one <laughs> other neat feature of the uh, the e-tron is it'll be the first car on the market in europe at least um with virtual mirrors uh so it'll it'll have the uh, camera-based rearview mirror system with OLED displays embedded in the, the door panels at either end of the dash, uh, basically right at the base of the A-pillar, pretty close to where you'd normally be looking at the mirrors, uh, will have these OLED displays. And then sticking on a thin little stock sticking out uh, where the mirror would normally be are a couple of cameras um that are looking back you know and the the advantage you know the advantages to that they they said that um their uh, their head of uh, development uh, i was in a round table with him on on monday afternoon uh he said that those virtual mirrors drop the um drag coefficient by about 10 counts so with standard mirrors it's uh the e-tron has a drag coefficient of 0.28 and with the virtual mirrors it drops to 0.27 and what that do, what that gets them is about an extra mile of range from every charge, huh. which you know is is not insignificant. No, it's not nothing. Yeah, um, and you know I, I talked to one of the engineers that you know worked on this system, and you know he said that you know because one of the concerns is you know having um, you know having that light coming off these these displays you know especially when you're driving at night that um, is my yes you knew what i was right. gonna say and, 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 that, <laughs> and that's actually why they opted to go with oled displays in there instead of uh regular lcd displays because the you know the, the way an lcd works you know is the you've got a, this matrix of tiny little shutters basically and there's a light behind that yeah they that, have to be back you know, as the yeah. shutters flip around you know that's that's what creates the display and it lets the light through and there's there's always some light leakage from an LCD. It's never completely black. Whereas an OLED, um, every pixel ge- is generating its own light. Um, right. They. they and, um, yes. They. So so when when it's when it's black, I mean when it's off, it's completely black. That's that. So, I mean, and that's nice. Yeah, because you can. It, it's it basically works like a lightning bug. Um, yeah. It it, it uh, you know I I forget what it is. It's not bioluminescence, but it's it's similar it's yeah it's, it's a similar concept yeah yeah and um, and and at night you know it, it it'll it'll automatically be dimmer than it will be during the daytime you know so if you're driving down the down the road at night if there's nobody behind you it's basically going to be you know essentially dark um you know and it's only you know when there's when there's some something lit up behind you 
that you're ever going to see anything on that display, which is pretty much what you'd get with a regular mirror. I mean, if there's yeah. if you're driving down a dark road at night and there's nobody behind you, you're, you know, there's not going to be any light reflected off the mirror and you're going to get essentially the same thing off this display. Yeah, it's, and it, it does open up some interesting possibilities too. It, it, like, I, I want to try it and see how I acclimate to it because um, I'm not a huge fan of extra screens anywhere. But again, like if they've thought of it and they've worked, tried to work it out, I, I want to try it and see what it's like. It also, if you go from like a traditional camera sensor to like an IR sensor, now you can you can show things in that. Uh, that display that you wouldn't be able to see right. otherwise. So there's, there's not, ways there's ways to enhance it and you know add additional functionality to it. Plus, you know, not having that mirror out there, you know, and especially on a on a utility, you typically have larger mirrors, you know, so that reduces the blind spot that you have at the base of the A pillar. Right. That's and true. the other the other thing too is no matter where your seating position is, um you're, those things are always going to be set correctly to give you the proper view of what's back there, you know, where, as right. opposed to, you know, a lot of people, you know, incorrectly set their mirrors and, you know, they end up seeing too much of their fender instead of seeing what's, you know, what's on either side of them and behind them. And these will always be set correctly. You know, so you will always get the right view from those displays. I mean, in a way that's great, but it also takes some of the sport out of it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh yeah, I'm I'm excited for this to actually uh start start winding up uh making deliveries. Um I, I think it it's actually yeah, so gonna deliveries, do a lot. Yeah, yeah, deliveries start in, in uh Europe uh in about a month or so. Um they're they're in production now. They'll be they'll be shipping to dealers soon. Uh and then it comes to the US uh in the spring. Uh so we get it in the second quarter of twenty nineteen. Um, and they're expecting the U.S. to be the largest market for this, followed by China and then Europe. Do you feel like there's this this um, kind of sense of a critical mass now of uh, EVs uh, starting to really just build? Like I was saying, you know, we've, we've seen and especially on the premium side, you know, we've seen in a very quick succession all of the premium automakers and they're all they're all SUVs and crossovers. Uh, come out with with electrified and not just electrified but electric like ev uh products to com compete with sort of the market that tesla opened up but really like every time you turn around now there's there's another one is this going to just really snowball very quickly um hopefully <laughs> for for all the companies that are putting all the money into developing these uh they be they better hope that it snowballs because you know we've got a critical mass of supply yeah. uh, that's going to be available in the coming months. Um, what we don't yet know is whether we'll have a critical mass of demand, you know, and that's, that's the big unknown is, you know, can, can they get consumers to actually buy these things? Yes, think, they can. You know, for, 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 <laughs> I, for vehicles like the e-tron and the, the EQC and the Jaguar, um, you know, I think it will be less of a challenge to get premium buyers to, uh, to go for these things. Um, because, you know, clearly, you know, buyer, you know, more affluent customers have shown um, a willingness to buy, um, you know, premium EVs from Tesla. And, you know, I think these these vehicles, certainly the, the Audi and, and the Jaguar, you know, I think have an inherent appeal to them uh, that will 
you know that customers will probably go for and so i think i think these vehicles at least you know will not have too much of a problem selling out um you know it's as we start going a little bit more down market where it's going to be more of a challenge to get customers to adopt these things um you know and you know one very interesting test case is going to be the uh the new Hyundai Kona EV uh which I'll be driving in a few weeks um and it goes on sale towards the end of the year uh, here in the US um and that one has already gone through its EPA certification it's got a range of 258 miles uh which is one of the best EVs on the market right? Yeah, and the Kona um, itself is just really, really good. Yeah, it's a great little car or a great little crossover. Um, and they'll, you know, they uh, Hyundai hasn't announced pricing on it yet, so it'll be interesting to see how that one does uh, and how they price it. Um, you know, if they can price it aggressively enough, then they, you know, they may just be able to get some start getting some traction with these things. Well, and you know, I, for some reason, the e-tron feels really significant to me. Um, just like the, as a development and I, I don't know why, um, but like it just to, as driving towards, you know, more wide scale acceptance. But I think that you can, regardless of where the car is positioned, you know, whether it's premium or just mainstream, um, that's a messaging challenge, right? Like one of the nicest things about EVs is that they're, they're really, they're fuel agnostic. And so they don't care what you generate the electrons with. They just want the electrons, you know, right. like it doesn't come if it doesn't matter if it's solar or wind or natural gas or coal right. or uh, whatever else it might be. So you can take that. You, you can almost turn that weakness, that perceived weakness of like, oh, charging infrastructure is, is still being built out. Yes, it is. But also you're not tied to like, oh, they don't have diesel or, you know, this takes premium gas. Like, nope, this takes electricity. <laughs> doesn't yep. matter how you make it. So but, I'll be interested know, that, to see how they do that. But, that you know, th there's actually some challenges associated with that, um, you know, from, you know, from a utility standpoint. And, you know, this is one of the things that, that my company, you know, works with companies on, um, you know, is figuring out where to locate charging stations because it's not as simple as just saying, you know, following along, you know, on a hot, along an interstate and every 120 miles you drop one of these down, you know, it's actually a lot more complex because especially if you're going to do high power DC charging, now you need a lot of electrical capacity to feed right. those chargers. Right. Where are the transmission lines? Where's the transformer yard? All that stuff. Right? Like yeah. And, um, you know, if you're if you're going to be taking power off the grid, you know, if you're if you're not generating it locally, you know, with your own solar and wind, um, if you're going to be taking power off the grid, you know, when you plug in a vehicle, you know, unless you unless you have set up that station with a bunch of local uh, battery storage, you know, on, on site battery storage to provide the, the transient uh, power, you know, the, the, that 150 or 350 kilowatts. Um, if you start, if you try to pull that straight off the grid, you know, there's this, uh, this concept called demand charge, um, you know, for, for commercial, you know, for, for you and I, for, for our residential electricity, you know, we never have, you know, those kinds of spikes of demand or we shouldn't put <laughs> this way. If, if you're, if you're, your, your house shouldn't be having those kinds of spikes of demand right. because if it, if it did, uh, it would probably be on fire. 
Um, but, uh, <laughs> very very know, shortly, for, yes. <laughs> yeah, for for you know for a lot of commercial applications, you get spikes of demand. So I mean, for for residential, we typically just pay you know a flat rate per kilowatt hour, and it, it, you know oftentimes it's two rates, you know peak and off peak rates. But you know one of two rates per kilowatt hour, no matter how many kilowatt hours we use, you know, it's just, it's just straight up metered, but for commercial applications, they do demand charges. And so the, the amount that they pay actually is based on whatever the peak, um, uh, rate is during a month, you know? So if at some point they're pulling, you know, a megawatt of power, you know, at any particular location, even if, you know, 98% of the time during that month, they're only pulling, um, you know, 100 kilowatts, um, you know, for for a business, they get they get charged based on that megawatt because the utility has to build up capacity for the peak. So they charge a rate based on whatever your peak is. So that's why you've got a lot of places that are looking at using stationary batteries to shave off those peaks and reduce those peaks and, you know, reducing the demand charges, Yeah. you know, for charging stations, you know, if you're going to be charging a bunch of vehicles at high power, all of a sudden you've got, you know, um, very high demand charges potentially if you don't set it up in the right location and do it, you know, do it the right way with, with local battery storage. Yeah, well, so that's, I mean, that's a whole other like podcast topic really, because when you, consider that one of the selling points of an EV is its environmental friendliness. Well, when you're talking about a lot of batteries, that's not exactly um, a sort of light impact on the environment, given the materials that are in batteries. Now I know that with, with local battery storage, I mean, you could use older tech, you know, like lead acid, but still that's lead and acid. <laughs> Well, yeah, um, I mean, and I mean, there's there's other chemistries you can use, and you know, for stationary storage applications, you know, the chemistries are are different, you know, um, because you've got a different kind of use case for those batteries than you do for in vehicle, um, and plus, you know, um, those those batteries will typically last a longer period of time. You know, they 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 would have a different life cycle than an in vehicle battery. Um, but still, you're right. I mean, there, there are, you know, no matter what kind you use, there's there's certain materials that are can be problematic. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, it's something that we we probably you know, we need to figure out how to do it. Oh, yeah. Like I, I'm I'm not saying that these are roadblocks. These are these are challenges. And it, right. so it's it's an interesting thing to think about and to talk about and to watch how it gets solved. I mean, it's a good thing we've got a lot of retail space that's opening up with the <laughs> the death of, <laughs> of of shopping malls because we'll be able to just bulldoze the malls and build battery storage facilities. Great. Yeah. Well, you know, you know where this gets interesting though is you start talking about autonomous mobility services, you know, autonomous ride hailing with um, you know using EVs. You know those those vehicles. You know for for the business case to work for those vehicles, they need to be operating all the time. They need to be, right. need to be in use and you don't want them sitting around, um, you know, on a charger for several hours a day. So that means that you're going, you're probably going to be doing DC fast charging on those vehicles like GM and cruise, you know, they set up uh, their first depot in San Francisco to support their, their launch next year, you know, um, in, you know, in the Embarcadero area, they've got a depot with 18 DC fast chargers in there to charge their autonomous bolts. Um, and, you know, they're, they're going to need multiple of those around. But one of the way, you know, one of the potential ways to get a, there's a number of ways to get around that problem. 
uh, you know, and you know, one is battery swapping, you know, and if you're if you're talking about a fleet, you know, where the the fleet, you know, whoever's operating the fleet knows the history of all the batteries, um, you know, you can make the charging asynchronous from the re-energizing of the vehicles, you know, so you can put the 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 batteries on a on a trickle charge, you know, and just swap in a fully charged battery into the vehicle. Yeah, I again, like there's going to be some interesting stuff that happens. Um, yep. So it, it'll be cool to cool to watch it all get solved. I mean, I would, I would. There's this thing too, like autonomous vehicles are that technology is coming. Um, but really, what we need to do is figure out how to actually reduce the use of vehicles, and <laughs> you know, take vehicles yeah. off the road. And by just like saying, like, yeah, like these fleets are going to go to driverless cars, and so you've either not made a change or you've actually added traffic. Um, because when your business model is to give rides, like, yes, you want that car in use every second possible to generate revenue, uh, versus a privately owned car where like, we actually want to try to reduce the usage or, you know, some other, some other way to make those things more efficient and productive when they're parked. Like, uh, do they, do they feed their power back into the grid to sort of smooth out, um, you know, peaks and valleys in the, in the demand and, so there's lots of ideas and lots of lots of interesting things to, to watch. And I and suppose. you know if you're if you're interested in uh, you know more you know getting more help with uh, with that whole area, just uh, reach out to Navigant Research and uh, we'll there set you, you up with you know with some consulting work and we'll be all good. And if you want to, yeah, we're doing shameless plugs. If you want to sell EVs, <laughs> you let's talk because I would really love to do a car account and car advertising sucks. <laughs> so um yeah uh let's let's talk about a couple of other things um you get to see a very classic showdown here right the the cadillac xt4 you got to do the drive and then you got to do the uh the lincoln nautilus drive so um what are your what are your impressions of both of those well first of all you know the these aren't they're not direct competitors right um you know the xt4 is a compact you know so it's it's going up against the likes of the mkc the lincoln mkc and actually the the vehicles that uh cadillac's uh, chief engineer uh, tim paul or todd pollock um identified as the benchmarks for the xt4 were the the x1 the bmw x1 and the audi q3 which i thought were was interesting because they're both smaller quite a bit smaller well, than so, the xt4 right that that makes me think that they picked those so they can say well the xt4 is actually larger <laughs> yeah well that, <laughs> that is more. part of it <laughs> um you know so you know it's the xt4 is closer in size to the q5 and uh the x3 um you know the the thing the thing about the XT4 is you know there's a lot I liked about it. Um you know I think you know overall it's executed really well. Um you know and in describing it the designer talked about it you know talked about the design you know as, this is a little brother to the Escalade and you know kind of made the analogy you know to a great dane puppy you know a great dane puppy you know even when it's small it's still got big features it's got big floppy ears and big paws and everything and then it kind of grows into those and you know he talked about the xt4 design as kind of being that that great dane puppy you know so it's got big features you know on the small body 
um, you know, and, you know, talking about things like the headlights and the taillights and um, the wheels, you know, big wheels pushed out to the corners. And in fact, you know, on the road, especially it, it's actually really good looking. I think, you know, I think it has a, a good stance to it. Um, you know, it, it's fairly sporting and athletic. You know, it's not a groundbreaking design by any stretch, but I think, you know, I think overall yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty well done. It's got good proportions to it. Yeah, The design is way more successful than that analogy. I mean, that, yeah, I no, I, cause the, the, everything looks proportional. Like you're saying, like the, the headlights and taillights and, and wheels and, and just the overall features, they look appropriate for, for what it is. Uh, so it doesn't look like it's carrying around like an escalated headlight cluster. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, but it, I, okay. If that's how they want to justify it, fine. I just, it's a good looking compact crossover. Well, you know, I mean, those, those headlights, you know, like the, especially the, you know, the, the running lights, the signature running lights there, you know, they're, they're actually pretty big. I mean, if you look at how long those things stretch, how far back up the fender they go and down to the, the bumper, you know, they're, they're actually pretty good size, you know, and similarly, the, the taillights are, you know, pretty long, you know, stretching all the way up to the, the roof. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I think, you know, overall, it's a pretty successful design. It's, it's not, like I said, it doesn't really break any new ground, um, but, it, you know, it works and it, it fits in with the, the Cadillac design DNA. Um, you know, similarly on the inside, you know, everything, you know, is there, you know, it's it's the materials are good. Um, but, there, you know, there's nothing really exceptional about it. Um, you know, and it there's nothing new or, or really terribly interesting, but it, but it, it's good. You know, one, one interesting detail that I think actually is really good is, you know, they talked about the way they uh, did the, the side glass, you know, the, what they call the DLO, the daylight opening and the side glass and the way they cut the rear door. You know, one thing you may have noticed in a lot of newer vehicles is, the, you know, the way the roof lines are done. When you get in the back seat, you're you often end up having the pillars coming up beside your head. And if you look out to the side, you'll be looking at the inside of the pillar instead of out the window. And so you get kind of this claustrophobic feeling around you sometimes. And they deliberately designed the the rear glass, um, you know, to stretch back further. And so when you sit in the back seat of the XT4, if you turn and look sideways, you're looking out the window. So you, it has a more open feeling in the back seat. And, you know, the back seat, you know, for the size of the vehicle is actually surprisingly roomy. Yeah. I mean, overall, like, I think it's a, it's a nice, you know, clever design. It's a, it's a car in, in terms of the segment that Cadillac has needed for like five years now. Um, yeah. So it's, it's good that it's finally here. Um, how does it do? So on the road, um, you know, the the driving dynamics are generally pretty good. Uh, it's available with uh, adaptive dampers, you know, and, and the sport version um, and also in the uh, the premium luxury version. So the, the two top trim levels, you, you get uh, uh, adaptive damping in there. So, you know, it's got a really good combination of ride quality and, and handling capability. The steering, you know, the weighting is good. But, you know, there's not really any real feedback, um, you know, so it goes around corners pretty well. But, you, you know, you don't have that. You know, if you're really going to push it, you don't have the, the kind of feedback you would want if you're going to really drive more aggressively. Um, you know, the engine's got, you know, enough power. 
um, it's uh, it's actually an all new engine. It, it's uh, the first application of this new um, the the larger four cylinder engine um, that they're doing for uh, for um, smaller vehicles. So it, it's you know even though you know GM has had a two liter turbo for several years now, uh, this is an all new design uh, that's more efficient. Um, it's got new new uh, variable valve lift and timing system. Um, it's overall, it's about 15 kilograms lighter than before. Um, and it also has it, GM's first application on a four cylinder of, uh, cylinder deactivation. So it can shut off two cylinders, uh, under light load conditions. And, you know, during the time we drove it, I never, you know, never noticed, you know, if, if it was cycling on, uh, on or off between two and four cylinder mode, it was completely seamless. Um, the nine speed automatic transmission uh, worked really well. It was it was very smooth. But I don't know, it's just something overall about driving. It just kind of left me a little underwhelmed. Um, and I think what it is, you know, is when I think. When I think the the car that the the vehicle I would really compare this most to is um, is actually the Acura RDX, you know. And I think one of the things that kind of bugged me a little bit about this is when you look at the you start looking at the uh, pricing for the uh, the XT4. You know, it starts at like thirty six thousand dollars. That's but, not terrible. Uh, it, yeah, but the the one that, you know the um, the sport that uh, we drove for most of the day uh, came out to $58,000. It's starting to get expensive. (laughs) Yeah. For, you know, for a compact uh, premium crossover, you know, it's a bit on the pricey side, especially when you compare it to the RDX, the RDX a spec that I drove back in June was $48,000. It was $10,000 less than this. That's, I mean, and it was more fun to drive. That's where it gets. I, I don't, and I, I don't know about the rest of the segment that the, the X-T4 is competing in, but the, the Acura stuff tends to be like a fully loaded for a really great price. And like you said, excellent to drive, uh, especially when you get the A-Specs. So that's tough competition. I just I wonder if um, I think I think the thing that bugs me about GM's approach to pricing these is, you know, they, they nickel and dime you on a lot of the things that you would expect should be included in a vehicle like this, especially if you start comparing it to mainstream, like the driver assist stuff, you know, the adaptive cruise control and lane keeping, um, you know, this is, these are features that are now becoming standard equipment on cars like the Honda civic and the Toyota yeah. Camry. And in fact, pretty much anything with a Toyota badge on it, uh, you know, and on this car, you know, it was an extra 1500 bucks for that yeah, driver assist package. It makes me wonder if uh, in their obsessive pursuit of benchmarking the Germans uh, for everything, they've benchmarked some of their practices in terms of pricing <laughs> options where what yeah. they really should do is yeah, make it, make it standard. And you know what? Just cut your margins to the bone so you can get out there. And they, I mean, their margins are probably are like, look, I don't, I don't run GM. So, <laughs> well, I wouldn't want them to cut their margins but, to the bone. You know, but, well, what, um, you know, but what I'm on, saying you know, is premium like premium brand, you know, I mean, that's this is where this is where you make your money. Right. I get it. But be prepared to undercut your competitors and offer that you know, sort of easy, easy superlative. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. The Germans, they're they're nice and we're also nice, but we don't charge you for that stuff. It just comes on every one of them because we feel that it's important. Like that's that's yeah. a real sort of e- easy thing to separate you. 
from the automakers that you've arguably been chasing for the last 30 years. So I don't yeah, know. I mean, you know, there, there's some, you know, there's some nice details, you know, especially inside, like, you know, the, the pockets along the side of the, uh, the center console. Um, you know, one of the things that, that uh, Todd Pollock talked about was, you know, they, they made them a little bit wider than on a lot of cars and there's no ridges on the inside. So, you know, if you drop a coin in there, which you often happens, you can stick your hand down in there and fish it out, you know, which is yeah. something you, know, you often can't do. You know, so a lot of, a lot of these things, you know, if you drop something down in there, you're never going to get it out. Um, so little details like that were good, you know, and you know, the updated, um, Cadillac Q infotainment system um, is is much oh, improved. Right. Yeah, it's it has much a more knob responsive. Now. It has a yeah, it's got a center control knob, you know, which is a good thing, um, and um, you know it it works better. You know they've got uh, features like the, um, uh, you know they've got support for Amazon deliveries. Uh, so if you get right. one of these, you know, if you, ha you know, um, you can have packages delivered right to the, the, uh, the cargo area of the vehicle, you know, the Amazon delivery person will get a one-time code to open up the tailgate and they'll stick the package in there and close it and then be on their way. Um, so, you know, some nice, nice features like that, but overall, you know, it's, it was totally competent, um, totally competitive. It just didn't break through in any area. I mean, and maybe that's just what Cadillac needs. But in, in the past, we've seen uh, Cadillac struggle when they they try to do this stuff, and like it's too bad because like the product is it's generally good, but their sedans are getting killed. You know what I yeah. mean? Um, well, everybody's are, but yeah, especially Cadillacs. Um, you know, and you know the the CT4 and or the ATS and the um, CTS are going to be uh, replaced soon by uh, by the new CT5. Um, so that'll be coming. Uh, we'll, I suspect we'll probably see that uh, either at the LA Auto Show or the Detroit Auto Show. Uh, see that one coming out. Um, you know, and they're they're going to have more crossovers added to the lineup as well, just as everyone else is doing. Yeah, and they need to. So if you want a Cadillac sedan, now is your chance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's all right. All right. So let's let's talk about the Lincoln, the Nautilus, which is uh, sort of like the same meets meet the uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Uh, it's just got a nose job on it, but uh, yeah. So the the Nautilus is the uh, the artist formerly known as X, as uh, MKX. Um, uh, Lincoln has finally decided that, uh, the MK branding, uh, across all their vehicles was, um, shall we say unsuccessful, um, yeah. to totally random, you know, there was no rhyme or reason to it, uh, for the most part. And so they're abandoning that they're, they're going to names. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the navigator always had a name, but, you know, starting with the continental, uh, you know, when that replaced the MKS, it got, you know, brought back the continental name. The Nautilus is a new nameplate for Lincoln and that replaces MKX. Um, when the, uh, MKC, gets its redesign in the next year and a half or so uh it's going to be rebadged as the corsair uh we've got the the aviator uh Cors the, corsair i will just remind everybody corsair is an edsel model name okay <laughs> moving on but i think the uh <laughs> the the uh, the association they're going for is the world war ii fighter jet the navy fighter jet okay uh, but, uh all right all right and that to, was the to go with the, aviator and navigator 
Sure. Uh, and I think the Corsair was, a, yeah, right, with that F4U besides, Corsair. Who, yeah. I mean, besides you, I mean, who who else, you know, uh, you know who else knows that, you know, that uh, Edsel's had any name but Edsel? Oh, come on. Ranger, Pacer, Corsair. Those are all Edsel's. All, all names that have been successfully reused on other vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. All right. So, carry on. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the approach that Lincoln has taken over the last um, few years has, has been interesting. You know, besides bringing back names, um, you know, they, you know, they took a look at what Cadillac and other brands were doing and they realized that, you know, trying to emulate Cadillac's approach of taking on the Germans directly, um, you know, was going to take way too long. I mean, you know, Cadillac's been at this for 15 years and they still struggle to be taken seriously against BMW and Mercedes and Audi. Um, and, you know, it was, it's been hugely expensive for them. Uh, you know, and it's, it's just, it's not an approach that Ford really wanted to make that kind of investment in. So they looked at, you know, well, what, what else can we do? You know, and they decided to focus more you know, on, on making, on executing the vehicles they were going to do really well and really focus on the customer experience. And they've got this whole theme of quiet luxury, you know, so, you know, the vehicles are, you know, they're, they're premium, but they're not ostentatious, uh, you know, and, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to, they're not trying to be performance vehicles, you know, like a BMW, uh, you know, or a Mercedes AMG or something like that. You know, they're trying to be, um, you know, trying to create a sense of serenity, you know, and, um, you know, reducing stress for the driver and, and the other vehicle occupants. And I think, you know, the, the Nautilus does that. It does that really well. Um, you know, it's not, it's not exciting, but, um, you know, it, you know, they set out a path for themselves and they've executed on that path. Um, you know, and so, you know, some of the things they did, you know, in addition to the, the new nose, the new Lincoln face on this thing, which I think actually works really well on this, on this body. Um, you know, they've done things like they added, they extended the acoustic laminated glass from the front door windows to the rear door windows. And they you've got active noise cancellation, standard equipment on here. And, you know, and so when you're driving down the road, no matter what road surface you're on. Oh, and this is something I forgot to mention about the X-T4. Um, you know, driving out of Seattle, there's, you know, on the first stretch of Interstate 5 out of Seattle, you know, it has a particularly coarse texture to the road. And there was a lot of road noise transmitted up into the X-T4. Um, from that road, from that road surface. And I mean, you know, any vehicle is going to be noisier on that one, but yeah, you know, it just, it seemed unusual for a vehicle like that. Yeah. But, um, you know, so the, the Lincoln, uh, you know, the, the Nautilus, um, you know, in, in general is a very quiet, serene place to be, you know, but it, it's also got things like adaptive damping. Um, you know, so, you know, when we drove it on some twisting mountain roads, you know, it, it did, surprisingly well you know it, it never wallowed or anything you know you you bend it into a curve and you know it would take a take a set you know and then you know up to the the limits of, of physics you know it would it would just hang right in there yeah um, I, I mean so i guess this is my my broader question about that though is like i noticed this when i drove the mkx with the the nano engine you know it definitely had mm -hmm. plenty of power uh overall it was you know it won't embarrass itself 
but it still felt klutzy. Like, um, it didn't really want to be doing those kinds of things. Like, yeah, okay, I'll hang on through the curve, but I really don't like this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it wasn't a joy to drive in that sense. It was just, it, it drove like an edge. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I, w- I wouldn't say this was a joy to drive, but I think it was definitely, it definitely felt more um, relaxed doing yeah. that. You know, it, it, it didn't, you know, it never felt like it wanted to trip over itself or anything like that. Um, it just felt very solid. Um, you know, you know, I mean, it, it, it certainly didn't feel nimble, but it did exactly what you would expect of it. You know, it was totally competent, uh, yeah. but in a, in a different, you know, in a way that fit with the, that overall theme, you know, so it's, it's not like it was that it that it ever gave you any impression that it wanted to be something more. It's like this is what I am, and I'm going to be really good at it. Sure, and, yeah. and like you know, I think that that's exactly what Lincoln needs. Like they don't need to chase Cadillac, they don't need to chase the Germans, right? They they need to chase Lexus, which I've said for years, and I, I think that their their product is finally pretty much there. I I don't know what the hell they're doing with messaging, and neither do they, but. <laughs> Yeah, the, the cars themselves are are good. You know, I want to see the MKC get a little better now because, you know, I just. I, yeah, well, again. It's, it's getting replaced uh, pretty soon anyway. So, you know, it's it's approaching the end of its life cycle. Yeah. Um, but and, you know, these are stopgap cars anyway. And they're the Lincolns are going to get Lincoln SUVs and crossovers are going to get the new Ford platforms that they just yep. reviewed that we talked about a few weeks ago. <laughs> Few months starting with now. starting with the aviator yeah so you know there's just a spark of life at lincoln <laughs> let's see if they can yeah. make a fire and you know the the base engine you know they've dropped the 3.7 liter v6 um and it's got the the two liter turbo in there now uh which you know is again you know kind of it when you look at it in the context of what this vehicle is trying to be you know 250 horsepower uh 258 foot pounds of torque it's that's fine. It's it's that's, it's more than enough, you know. Well, and I mean, the, the, the V6 you've got 335, uh, but you know there, there's plenty there's plenty here in this uh, for this vehicle. Yeah, the thing I I didn't like about the Nano was like yeah it has you know certainly healthy numbers. It it doesn't have that that off the line low end torque that the Turbo Forest do now. You know with that just mm-hmm. broad torque curve, and I you know maybe it was just the way it felt, but it it was like if I want the power. I really need to 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 poke at it, and and it may not be the engine at all. It may just be the way it's calibrated to be you know, responsive. Well, it may, not might responsive, also, might, yeah, and it might also be the uh, the transmission. Um, you know, when you drove it, it had uh, the six speed gearbox yeah. in there. The yeah. uh, the Nautilus has Ford's new eight speed transmission. Okay. Um, so you know, I it, I think it certainly felt better in here than it did in the than in the MKX did. All right. Oh, we'll go with that. Um, I mean, I think it's it's good looking. I'm surprised they got that nose to work with the back end much more successfully than um, the MKZ. That yeah, just well, looks like two different cars. Yeah, <laughs> the, the you know the the MKZ you know was was never never really intended to have that face on it. You know, so yeah, it's not yeah, it's course. definitely not as well integrated there. Yeah. Well, all right. 
I mean, I think we've done a podcast. I'm almost out of and recording space. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, we had to make up for not being around, um, you know, so uh, hopefully well, I'll, be, I'll we'll, be around next week. So, right. And I think I will be. I don't know. I do need to go out to for another day job thing, um, but it, that won't be that long. It'll be a couple of days. So if there's a delay, it's because I'm working hard. Um, <laughs> but yeah. We'll have another podcast. Yeah, we'll definitely do a podcast next week. I'm looking at the calendar now. So, uh, yeah, we'll do one, and I will actually try to finish up uh, another bonus episode that I've had sort of, like, tinkering away. Um, so we'll have some, some more content for you folks. In the meantime, you can send us emails and find us on social media and leave us reviews and comments and all of the things. Uh, and thanks for listening. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.